His bow banged against his head. A strong gust pushed him off balance and he flew forward, landing on his chest. He skidded, then got back up with a snarl, ignoring the deep scrapes in his skin. Safira was only three yards away, but he could get no closer because of her flailing wings. She struggled to fold them against the overpowering gale. He rushed at her right wing, intending to hold it down, but the wind caught her and she somersaulted over him. The spines on her back missed his head by inches. Safira clawed at the ground, trying to stay down. Her wings began to lift again, but before they could flip her, Aragon threw himself at the left one. The wing crumpled in at the joints and Safira tucked it firmly against her body. Aragon vaulted over her back and tumbled onto the other wing. Without warning, it was blown upward, sending him sliding to the ground. He broke his fall with a roll, then jumped up and grabbed the wing again. Safira started to fold it, and he pushed with all of his strength. The wind battled with them for a second, but with one last surge, they overcame it. This is Page Returners, a podcast about revisiting books that we loved as kids and seeing how they've changed and how we have. My name is Timothy Newton. And I'm Elliot Guiso. This month, we are talking about Aragon. Elliot, what the heck is an Aragon? Uh, Aragon is a fatal illness of the mind <laughs> where you discover that you can't write dialogue <laughs> and all of your descriptions of people's faces make them sound like animatronics <laughs> uh, i was gonna say aragon is dragon but you shifted one letter forward <laughs> one letter in the alphabet and hoped that nobody would notice but same diff yeah but no aragon is a novel by christopher paolini uh let me check what year it was published and i have it here so i want to say 2002 uh re okay it was originally published in 2001 uh but it was republished in 2003 for a national audience but uh yeah aragon is pretty much just like uh fairly run-of-the-mill uh high fantasy you know sword and sorcery dragons and elves type novel the thing that it does differently is that it was aimed very squarely at a young teenage boy audience yes um instead of being directed towards um kind of an older audience it's mm -hmm. It's extremely young adult, but also extremely high fantasy. Yeah, very much. It's very much like what if Jared or Tolkien was writing for 14-year-olds you know, instead of 40 to 60-year-olds. Uh, and the thing that makes that kind of remarkable uh, as a book is that uh, one of the big reasons that it's aimed so squarely at that demographic is that the author actually is in that demographic. Uh, he was 16 and 17 years old when he was working on this book and getting it published. Yeah, I think it was published when he was... He was born in 1983. Okay, so when he was originally publishing it, he would have been 18. And it was republished when he was 20. So he was writing it as like a 16 and 17 year old. Aragon was very much an inspiration for me um, mm -hmm. to kind of start writing around that age. 
Yeah, me too. It was one of those things where you see in the news, like, oh, this new best-selling book that all the kids love. You're like, oh, wow, look at this. And then, you know, you read all these articles that are like, yeah, it was this kid who was 17 years old and self-published his book and it got noticed by this national publisher and, you know, became this phenomenon. And, you know, when you're, you know, 13 or 14 and you read that, you're like, oh, wow, oh my God, like, that's amazing. I really want to be like that. It makes you feel like you can do it too. And you totally can't, but it makes you feel like you can. Absolutely. It's like those stories. It's like those stories that you read where it's like, this guy, this kid is out of debt and has his own house at 23. You won't believe how easy it was. And you read the article and it's like, his parents bought his house and paid off his debt. And you're like, well, I do believe how easy that was, but I don't think it's one of those inspiring anyone can do it stories. Small loan of a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of a similar thing because he was originally published by his parents' small independent publishing company. And they took him on like a book tour around the country and he got noticed by a uh, famous author, uh, Carl Hyassen. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that. <laughs> oh, what, did, what books did Carl write? I don't know that I know of his. Uh, he is... Do, 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 do. Let me see. What are his well-known books? Oh, I don't know any of these. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he wrote some children's books. Oh, no. Yes, I do. He wrote that book, uh, Hoot, the young adult novel. About, oh, yeah. Because uh, yeah. it found that bird. Uh, owl, yeah. That was, was a much better for. movie than uh, Aragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, no. Uh, so, uh, he noticed... Uh, noticed... Hold on. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Carl Hyassen, who wrote Hoot, uh, saw Christopher Paolini while he was out on that book tour uh, promoting his book that was self-published, and he brought it to his publisher, Alfred Knopf, and they published it for him in 2003 with like a big marketing campaign and stuff. So, you know, it, it sounds much more like an inspiring self-made boy story than it is, but it is still kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, as usual with these kind of things, it's because he knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. Mm -hmm, exactly. Let's talk about the important stuff in the plot, because this book is like 500 pages long, oh uh, my gosh. but it's plot doesn't necessarily justify that entire length yes which is a very common thread for the whole series that he wrote here uh, my copy on the pdf is 350 pages is your print copy 500 sure is yeah oh my gosh dude that's amazing yeah mine's i think 370 on my pdf but yeah it's a brick but it's actually fairly easy to summarize and i don't know if i want to start hammering on this uh particular point so early on in the podcast but have you ever seen a little movie called star wars <laughs> <laughs> if you have seen a star war you have already read most of aragon yeah imagine that instead of star wars it's on the ground wars <laughs> land <instead> wars <laughs> land wars literally and instead of lightsabers it's cool swords and dragons uh and that's pretty much it <laughs> and instead of a magic force it's a magic force yeah instead of the force it's magic uh, instead of jedi they're magic using dragon riders but yeah, uh, I, we can give like an actual synopsis of the story itself and quit dunking on it for a second. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, um, uh, the book starts out with its absolute weakest chapter, mm -hmm. um, which is the prologue. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit of that prologue. 
Wind howled through the night, carrying a scent that would change the world. A tall shade lifted his head and sniffed the air. He looked human, except for his crimson hair and maroon eyes. He blinked in surprise. The message had been correct. They were here. Or was it a trap? He weighed the odds, then said icily. Spread out. Hide behind trees and bushes. Stop whoever is coming, or die. (laughs) <laughs> Around him shuffled twelve ergles with short, with short swords and round iron shields painted with black symbols. They resembled men with bowed legs and thick, brutish, ard, brutish arms made for crushing. <laughs> A pair of twisted horns grew from above their small ears. The monsters hurried into the brush, grunting as they hid. Soon the rustling quieted, and the forest was silent again. If that... If this sort of writing continued throughout the book, <laughs> I would have absolutely hated it. Yeah, that um, would have been rough. What's so weird is that this is the prologue, and the prologue is supposed to be the most attention-catching part of the book because mm-hmm. someone picks it up at Barnes & Noble or whatever and reads a page. Uh, if I had done, if I had gone to a Barnes & Noble at my age and picked up Aragon without having read it before, uh, read these first things, very short three paragraphs i would have immediately put this book back down because that sucks the you wouldn't <laughs> the have first three paragraphs of this book that's awful you wouldn't have been hooked by that description of ebony darkness dementia ravenway's boyfriend <laughs> nope <laughs> it's... i can get through a dramatic reading of my immortal but not through the first three paragraphs of aragon <laughs> You know what blows my mind about this prologue as well is that the prologue is supposed to kind of set up your story and the characters that are in it. <laughs> you don't see any of these people again for several hundred pages. Yeah. They vanish from the plot without a word and are not brought up by anyone until more than halfway through the book, which leads me to believe uh, as somebody who has experience being 15 and 16 years old and trying to write an epic fantasy introduction uh christopher wrote this section like first out of anything and he could not bring himself not to use it as the prologue even though it's not good (laughs) yes this reads exactly like fan fiction written by a teenager this does not read like someone who's confident in their writing yeah and i guarantee you yeah that's what happened he didn't want to cut too much from it he didn't want to edit it down too much and he wanted to use it as the prologue even though it wasn't really advisable like i did that too when i tried to write a fantasy book at that age (laughs) Yeah, this is so weird that this book was republished um, with this prologue. Like, you think that maybe he would have gone and revised it so that it wasn't terrible. Yeah, or just cut it but out. Because, like, nope. <laughs> having the first scene be Aragon, you know, hunting in the woods, and then suddenly there's this big explosion and there's a weird, mysterious stone there. Like, that's a good start. You don't have to foreshadow what it is. You can just have him find it and have a little bit of mystery there. Yeah, honestly, the best way to start this book would have been at chapter one, not at prologue. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, in chapter one, uh, we cut to our hero, Aragon's young boy who lives in a a simple farming town out in the wilderness on the very edges of the empire. Uh, Stop me if you've heard this one before. He he lives with his (laughs) uncle because his parents are gone. (laughs) Does he happen to farm moisture? Uh, no, I'm not sure what they farm. Do they ever describe it, or is it just, like, some vegetables? You know, they they, they farm stuff. They just farm. They, they farm. have a farm, and they farm. Farmers only. <laughs> uh, but Aragon prefers to hunt rather than farm, uh, and he is out hunting when he finds this uh, 
mystical stone that was teleported to him by an elf that was captured by our evil friend the shade in the prologue uh and so he picks up this strange stone and brings it into town and uh kind of hides it okay the weird thing about this type of book is Mm -hmm. that in any other book this protagonist would have been super surprised by the fact that you know magic is real yeah and whatever (laughs) but he he's just pretty nonplussed about the whole thing aragon is a very stoic character (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh yeah it's almost like he's not well defined in any way almost like yeah (laughs) like he's a bit of a blank slate do you think (laughs) aragon um is 100 percent uh the twilight for like young boys Oh, wow. I had never heard it put that way before, but yes, absolutely it is. Yeah, it's very much that like self-insert fantasy in your favorite genre sort of thing, yeah. Uh, But yeah, he doesn't... I said he hid the stone earlier. That was kind of not correct. He kind of shows it around and people freak out about it and then he hides it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He tries to trade it to the butcher for some meat and the butcher, when he hears that he found it in the spine, which is like this part of the mountains that nobody goes to because it's cursed uh the butcher gets really upset with him it's like you get that out of my shop and aragon's like okay well maybe i should just not tell people i have this yeah you might be kind of mad if someone found a stone in your spine too though (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) jeez dude (laughs) so he takes his mystery stone home uh and hides it and Okay. <laughs> he hides the stone and it hatches into a dragon to no one's surprise except his because we all knew what the book was about when we started reading it. But, you know, you can't blame him for being surprised because he didn't see the cover with the dragon on it. One boy, one dragon, a world of adventure. Oh, is that the slogan that's on there? Oh, that, yeah, that's on the back of the book. That's very good. I like that. <laughs> so uh yeah a dragon hatches and he's like oh this is a dragon i can't believe dragons are real and he kind (laughs) of with about that much enthusiasm i i don't even think that it's that he can't believe that dragons are real because like dragons are are an established thing yeah that's Um, true it's that he can't he can't believe that the dragon is in front of him but he is he's also totally cool with it yeah yeah exactly i mean to be fair uh i'd be the same way if i if i were a farmer yeah if i was just a humble farmer and it's kind of like in star wars where uh like the jedi are an established fact of history but they're very much mythological figures at that point uh in history that luke is living in it's the same thing for aragon where like everybody knows the dragon riders existed but they think most of the facts about them are sort of exaggerated and mythologized right right and the thing that kind of starts off Star Wars is the, you know, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, but here that uh, the vision projected by the literal princess in the tower mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it is only received uh, like a quarter of the way through the book. There's a huge amount of setup that happens first. Yes, but the dragon that Aragon receives that sparks the whole adventure was also sent to him by that princess. Yes. <laughs> so a few of the things are out of order, but there is a princess and she does kick off the adventure by uh, signaling Aragon. <laughs> 
Right. And, and I've always had kind of a hard time trying to decide whether this book is directly copying Star Wars or just the most plain and simple hero's journey type story possible. I think it's the latter. I, I really don't think that Christopher Paolini gave a second thought to Star Wars while he was writing this. Like, I, I don't think he was sitting in front of his TV taking notes like, mm, okay, the princess is in jail and she sends a message to the hero and he comes and breaks her out of jail with this uh, mysterious roguish man. Like, yeah. I, I think he literally just worshipped at the altar of Joseph Campbell so hard that he <laughs> like found himself next to Lucas in that yeah. regard. <laughs> yeah, st state of comfort called a call to adventure road of trials mm -hmm. down to the t and then he kind of looked around and was like oh george lucas is here doing the same thing too who knew like yeah <laughs> yeah but uh uh the next thing that happens is also a star wars thing in that uh villains <laughs> villains find be a lot of that <laughs> villains find out that uh something is amiss uh, in this little farming town and they show up and kill his uncle and destroy the farm mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> kicking off his journey of revenge double uh, and, revenge and uh our friend aragon skywalker discovers that the strange old man in town is actually a very special figure who wants to help train him and teach him uh about the secret ways of magic and dragons and he presents him with uh, what we later find out is his father's old sword. <laughs> it's a good thing that those old men always live to see the second chapter of the story. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, man. Do you want to talk about uh, what, what they do when they leave town? The middle third of the book, maybe even more than that, is uh, Aragon and this old guy, Brom, just uh, traveling south um, through their country looking mm -hmm. for um well it part of it is that brahm is trying to train aragon and they're also slowly making their way towards the varden which are this very secretive group of rebels mm -hmm. who are fighting against the evil empire mm -hmm. yeah what probably the first uh major stop that they make is to go see uh brahm's friend what's his face Giad. Uh, or yeah, Jode. Yeah. Jode? However Joyed. you say it. Joyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they go see Joyed. Uh, because he knows... Um, he knows how to get them wherever they're going. It's not super important where they were actually going. They're just oh, but there continuing is, to travel. There is one important thing that happens before they meet up with Joyed. Oh, is that Aragon discovering that he can use magic? That's right. They're traveling through the countryside... Uh, and they realize that like there's been a lot more attacks from these uh, vicious Urgles lately, and the town, like the countryside, is kind of living in terror of the Empire and of the Urgles. Uh, and they get ambushed by Urgles in a town, and Aragon, uh, from the recesses of his mind, accidentally says the magic word for fire: Bazinga. <laughs> This Big Bang Theory prequel is something. <laughs> Young Sheldon goes some places, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the word is Brissinger, which I couldn't get that out of my head once I read it, and it destroyed my life while I was trying to read this book. <laughs> but yeah, he accidentally says the ancient word for fire and makes a big explosion with an arrow and kills the Urgles, and uh, that's how he discovers he can use magic. We all knew that the word Bazinga held such terrible power <laughs> we had just never seen it wielded by a true magician before 
one thing that I kind of do like about this book is the magic system is kind of neat. I, I was looking up a little bit of research on Paolini, and uh, Brissinger was the first word that he stumbled on, which is actually an old Norse word for fire. And he thought it was oh, so cool okay. that he he based his whole magic language around Old Norse. So all the words are, you know, variations on that language. Okay, yeah, that's very cool. Because I was, I was thinking that, like, there's no way that Paolini invented his own language for this. But if all this is based on ancient Norse words, that totally makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of cool. And it, it works a little bit better, I think, personally, than, like, the, oh, I'm going to do it again. It works a little bit better than the Harry Potter <laughs> yeah, <laughs> convention of just taking a bunch of Latin words and, like, slamming the prefixes and suffixes together randomly until you make something weird. If Elvish, which is basically the magic language, if that's based on Norse, what what are the dwarf languages based on, and what's the Urgle language based on? Uh, he made those up. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, that's why there's, like, way less of them. <laughs> that's why there's less of them and they're worse. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> yes, th those ones are not real. Too many carrots above random letters in the dwarf language oh, absolutely dude it's amazing but yeah it, it's kind of cool because like the the magic system that he imagines is very much like you can tell he's a big like storytelling and language nerd because uh the whole concept of magic is that like there's this whole original language that the world was created in and uh if you can learn the word for something in that language then you can wield power over that thing yeah, yeah, it's the concept of knowing something's true name in order to manipulate it. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the better you are at manipulating language, the more precisely that you can manipulate magic. Yeah, and, and not just magic, but that I think that later in the series that it that becomes important uh, in regards to like certain characters learning the true names of other characters. Oh yeah, there's a messed up part in one of the last books where he like learns the true name of a guy and like curses him to like walk the countryside. Like <laughs> there's some weird stuff that goes on later on with that, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember um, exactly what it is, but like he's like it's the old butcher and he do you remember that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's Sloane, that that happens yeah, to, the old but butcher, I'm not the sure. the old butcher Sloane, yeah, he loses his, his eyes, and Aragon, like, curses him to wander <laughs> the wilderness. Like, it's messed yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of cool. The The true name stuff does come into play a lot later, like Aragon trying to learn his own true name, and, like, uh, trying to comprehend true names of his enemies and stuff. The The magic system kind of spoke to the, the writing nerd in me, like, oh, it's kind of cool that the whole idea is that the better you are at... Uh, uh, putting together words, the more magic you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. It. Yeah. That that concept of um, I don't know. You're more powerful if you have a bigger vocabulary. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And better grammar. <laughs> <laughs> grammar is important, as Aragon finds out yep. in future books. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a major plot point in future books where uh. A little girl that he thought that he blessed yes. in this book uh, to prevent pain uh, turns out that because of a grammar mistake actually like absorbs pain from everyone around her. Yes, which is kind of one of my like favorite little things because it's so original to these stories. Like I don't think I've read anything quite like that before. I thought it was cool. Well, it, it's just like a genie's curse or whatever, but it's... Uh, but without the genie <laughs> yeah yeah and like it's such an interesting concept like he 
he tries to bless her to have like uh yeah misfortune stay away from her but he accidentally makes it so that like she can perceive everyone else's misery and misfortune around her all the time kind of like yeah. the whole thing with like oh superman always hears people's cries for help and like never knows peace like that sort of thing and like she ages like years within the first couple months of her life like to keep up with this burden of this curse that makes her supposed to be like this recipient of other people's sorrow like it's wild yeah uh, you, were, yeah, you were saying it, about anyway b- back to the <laughs> back, <laughs> back to, to the actual plot of the book yeah um so the reason why they talk to droid is because they're trying to track where uh the shipment of poison that the people who killed um aragon's uncle used Mm -hmm. uh it's something that like only they use so they're tracking it droid says hey it's in um Whatever. The name of the cities in this book are stupid. I think the city that they track it to is Helgrind. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's Drasleona. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, of, of course. And, and then they go to Helgrind. <laughs> There's a lot of traveling. <laughs> yeah, and the if you map out where they're going, it doesn't make any sense. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, about halfway through the book, I was like, wait, aren't they already past this place on their travel did they like double back at some point and go there were you referencing the map yes oh man i didn't do that i didn't make i didn't put that burden on myself no no it's it's easier to do on the non pdf version of this book oh no well i'm not saying the burden of turning back to the map page i'm saying the burden of trying to keep up with christopher paulini's geography (laughs) i just i just read the book and let him guide me on his magical journey Okay, so yeah, they they track the shipment of this poison to some city, um, and they try to do some infiltration uh, in like a castle or something, um, so that they get a better uh, idea of where to where to track it. The reason why I sound confused about this is because this goes on for like two hundred plus pages in my copy. Yes, it Uh, does. (laughs) Yeah, where so much of this book is just a journey um where they keep on repeating what the goal is which is uh killing the the two people called the razak yeah the um, kind of like monstrous guys yeah so so that's their that's kind of aragon's goal for the first two-thirds of the book or so I, but so much is just random unfruitful journeys and that's a good like launching off point for one of the things that bothered me about this book <laughs> is that uh the book has such an issue with concision like christopher spends a good 80 percent of his time trying to anticipate and like deal with these most inconsequential little details and like uh, quote-unquote plot holes like he he will go into just granular detail about everything everyone does just to make sure you understand that he knew the process they would have to go through like when they first try to make a saddle for Safira, he spends a couple of pages describing exactly how the saddle was put together and like how many straps they had to cut <laughs> yeah that there's like there's a pretty severe editing problem with this book uh it it feels um it feels a lot of the time like Christopher Paulini started off as a pretty talented writer and then just no one reined him back. 
and he was just allowed to do whatever with this book. Yeah, like nobody had the heart to tell him like we need to change this, this, and this. Like they just kind of let him write what he wanted to write, which is a shame because like I think with a lot of that kind of work, this could have been a lot better. Yeah, the the edited version of this book, written by a more mature uh, Christopher Paolini, would have been excellent in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean this book isn't bad. It's just not yeah, great. No, I, and it could have been great. I still like this book, but I'm hard on it um because I see the, the potential for it. Yes, cuz it could have been really good. <laughs> they yeah, they they track the Razak to their kind of home base in this creepy town called Helgrind. Uh and <laughs> Aragon makes the brilliant choice to for some reason like go to the chapel of the local like hell religion yeah <laughs> like the local satanic temple and it's just like i'm sure that the evil monsters that make their home base in this town won't find me here <laughs> they're ambushed as you might totally expect by this point he literally um, turns around from looking at the altar and they're in the doorway and they chase right him. <laughs> yeah they they chase um him and brahm out of the city uh and they're they're safe for a little bit but then they're ambushed again during the night there's and a lot of ambushing <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah they, they are the ambushed and the ambushes at different points mm-hmm. um yeah brahm um yeah brahm saves aragon from being killed by the razak but it instead is like mortally wounded fortunately for aragon it is at this point um where Murtog shows up, yeah, who Murtog. is kind of Aragon's. Uh, he sort of becomes Aragon's new mentor, even though he's just a couple years older than him. But yeah. he's kind of a, a new guide for him. Yeah, he's kind of more like the respected peer. But yeah, yeah, he kind of takes Brom's place conveniently right as Brom gets killed. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine, um, in like in the Star Wars universe who who Murtog would be but I don't uh, know if there's a direct parallel. The thing with Murtog is that he's half Han Solo and half Darth Vader. Oh yeah, I because can see that. The big Luke I am your father moment comes in book 2 when it's Aragon I am your brother and it turns out that uh oh, yeah. Mur- Murtog and Aragon are both the sons of uh the evil emperor Galbatorix's right-hand man. So in this like in this story Darth Vader is already dead. Uh, he got killed by Obi-Wan ages ago, and instead of it being like, oh, just kidding, Obi-Wan didn't kill him, that's only true from a certain perspective, it's, yeah. oh, his son is here now, and uh, he is your brother. Kylo Ren. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's, pretty he's much. He's basically Kylo Ren. <laughs> yeah, so instead of the princess being Aragon's sister, it turns out Han Solo is his brother and also evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, so Murtog starts out as um, a pretty cool guy. He, like, gets him through uh, Brahm's death. Yeah. And, yeah, he's very, very resourceful traveling companion. He teaches him more about sword fighting um, and about uh, the history of the Empire and what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he also tells him more about um, the Varden. But that's because he he hates the Varden because yeah. he, he feels that they wouldn't accept him as he's the son of um, the evil, the evil right hand <coughs> emperor guy. Uh, is, what, never... is Murtaugh's dad's name Morzan? Is that him? Yes, Morzan. That's the one. Yeah. I was trying to remember it. Boy, the names in this book. <laughs> yeah. But too yeah. many. <laughs> and uh, 
the one important thing uh as brahm dies is that he tells uh aragon that he was a dragon rider even though he constantly insisted that he never was a dragon rider and he didn't know any dragon riders <laughs> it, it's totally apparent by this point um that he was in fact a dragon rider yes but like at, at the moment of his death he decides to confirm everyone's suspicions yeah none of the twists in this book shock you like it's all stuff that you could see coming from a mile away when murtag reveals like oh i don't want to go see the varden because i'm morzan's son you're like oh wow no way because <laughs> like aragon's constantly talking about how like oh how does he know so much about the inner workings of the emperor's court and why does he hate the empire so much but mm -hmm. why is he afraid of the varden so much and like by the time you're halfway through uh meeting murtog to finding out that he's morzan's son you're like okay he's obviously related to somebody in the court and then like he reveals it you're like oh wow i can't believe it yeah and they're not like bad explanations they're just so typical of this type of story oh yeah it makes perfect sense but it makes so much sense that you see it eight miles away you will like this book if you are okay um with a with a story that you've heard a thousand times before told in a different way yeah kind of remixed and uh shuffled around a bit pretty much yeah if this is just um a hero's journey with frills on it and dragons Yep, and the dragons are cool. I like the dragons. We haven't talked a lot about his dragon, Sephira, but like the the whole uh, the whole mythology of dragons in this universe is pretty neat. Yeah, Sephira is out and out my favorite character in this book. Why um, is that? Because she is not the same lawful good that every other big <laughs> character is. <laughs> oh come on, Murtag is chaotic centrist. Chaotic centrist. <laughs> But you're right, everyone else is very much either lawful good or lawful evil. Well, chaotic evil. No, they're pretty lawful evil, but only because the law of the land is evil. Like, Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. I, I mean, you you could disagree, but like, I'm pretty sure that like Galvatorix and the Shade and all are lawful evil. They don't go around like breaking the rules, they just go around murdering people. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that, but they're they're only cha they're only not chaotic evil because they're the ones who made the laws. Yes, because they're in power. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Saphira is more of the chaotic neutral character, which yeah. is always a, a character type that I enjoy. Um, she is very much um, like whoever is with me, I'll be with them, and whoever is against me, I'm against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's got very much like he he kind of nails that sense that like she comes from a very ancient civilization and species where like she's got sort of a remove from the immediacy of the world around her and kind of sees things from a bit of a distance which makes her perspective interesting. Yeah, she has like ancestral memory type stuff going on where uh I guess the the wisdom of the dragons is genetic in some way. Mhm. Mm yeah, and she's she's very philosophical, but usually not in an annoying way. Uh, it, it's cool because the dragons communicate with their riders uh, through telepathy. So uh, she can't speak out loud, but she can contact people's minds. And that turns out to be a pretty important part of the magic system later on, too, is that uh, uh, wizards, uh, if they want to do a magic duel, will have to contact each other's minds and try to break down their mental defenses. Yeah, it, the reason why dragon riders are so much more powerful than everyone else is that they draw magical strength from the dragons instead of from the, um, like, herbology or sorcery or whatever that all the other magic users are doing. Yeah, or even from their own bodies, because, like, uh, one of the 
hooks of the magic system is that uh, anything you do with magic takes as much energy out of your body as it would have for you to do the same task yourself. Uh, but with the help of the dragons, they can use the dragon's strength as well as their own to do bigger things without dying. <laughs> yeah, that that concept of it using the same amount of energy uh, as it would take to do yourself is like, that's a cool concept. Um, I don't know how much my mind is actually like that. That just that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there's stuff that happens here. Like how much how much body energy does it take to generate fire out of thin air? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, stuff like that bothered me too. He plays fast and loose with it, and he insists that it's like this iron law of magic that like, you know, equivalent exchange type thing where it will take as much energy as it would have, and like it's affected by distance. If you do something, try to do something far away, it like doubles and triples how much energy it would take. And But then like in, in the moment, he can do all kinds of stuff without getting too tired as long as it's convenient, or something will be super tiring if it's supposed to be like a dramatic moment, even though it probably wouldn't have been that hard to do. My own headcanon is that it works the same way um that work does in physics and chemistry where <laughs> yeah. it's like what, what uh what's the what's the calories that will be generated by this amount of heat <laughs> <laughs> yes one of the other things about the magic system is that if you commit yourself to doing a piece of magic that would take more energy than you have in your body it will just kill you hate it when that happens hate it when i try to do too much magic and i die yeah there's only a little bit there's a lot more book left but there's only a little bit more plot left <laughs> <laughs> yeah the first half of this book um kind of flies by mm -hmm. and it, it starts to drag about halfway through oh boy it does <laughs> do you want to talk at all about <laughs> the your favorite scene uh crossing the river oh my goodness dude okay so like crossing the desert and crossing the river were that's pretty much where my notes end <laughs> <laughs> is I have a note uh, about page 240, which is where they start talking about how they're going to cross the desert. And they have this unbelievably laborious discussion about how to draw water out of sand so that they yeah. can drink so that they can drink while they cross through the desert so like aragon troubleshoots this process of d drawing water up from deep in the ground to the surface so they can drink in the desert uh instead of just having it be a couple paragraphs where he's like he had the idea that he could do this and he tried it and it worked uh paolini walks you through his whole troubleshooting process of like how much energy does it take to draw this much water this far up out of the ground oh no this is too hard i can't do this every day what if i did it this way oh this is a little bit easier but i'm gonna have to try this too and it's like buddy i don't need to know i don't need your step-by-step -step progress report about how this works <laughs> like i just need you to tell me oh i could use magic to dig a hole and draw water up into it from deep in the ground that's how we'll get through the desert without dying that takes a couple of sentences paulini tries to create um tension in like every little action that happens yes. Um, sometimes it works, but not all that often. It's very hit and miss. And that's, that's the thing I was talking about earlier of like the, the book just labors over these little things where like, you can tell that he was really proud of his thought process working through like how to solve this problem in the story. Yeah. But instead of realizing that you leave that stuff behind the scenes and feel pride in your heart, but don't say anything and just put your solution in the story. Uh, he puts the whole process in there every single time. <laughs> so he'll have characters like talk back and forth about like for example like you said getting across the river where they're trying to figure out like okay how do we get these two horses and us and our dragon and this unconscious elf across the river and they spend i kid you not four or five maybe six pages 
just talking back and forth, Murtaugh and Aragon about like, hmm, the horses will be spooked if Saphira carries them. She'll have to carry them one at a time, and they'll make a lot of noise, which might draw attention. And, you know, uh, Arya is hanging in a, a sling underneath Saphira, but if Saphira lands with Arya under her, she might crush her, and we gotta figure out like, oh my goodness, they go back and forth forever about this and it comes down to Saphira carries them over one at a time and then they carry on their way like it's wild you're a young farm boy with a boat you have a fox a chicken <laughs> and a sack of grain and a dragon in a dragon <laughs> <laughs> what do you do oh my goodness but yeah it, and there's there's so much stuff like that that i couldn't list all of the moments that did this but they kind of get denser as the book goes on he does it more and more often which is i think why it drags well it's it's also that this book ends up feeling uh so much shorter than it actually is mm-hmm. because um so much of the book is just random stuff like that where it's like it's inconsequential arguing about stuff that's resolved in a single sentence or it's um it's you know traveling back and forth to places that make no sense when you could have just said hey let's let's not waste the reader's time and energy let's just do this one thing that's actually important to the story basically the book aragon is an exercise in how to make mountains out of as many molehills as you can yes (laughs) yeah up until um Brom dies and Murtog shows up has basically been set up uh for the book the the main story doesn't even start until like more than halfway through you know what blows um, my mind about that dude what the Razak stopped being mentioned like pretty much entirely after that point it's like two whole separate conflicts are they even around for the rest of the book no, not in Aragon. They come back in Eldest. Oh my gosh. So he introduces the Shade in the prologue. Yeah. And then the Shade drops out of the story for half the story, and the Razak show up, and they're the bad guys. Uh, and then Aragon is trying to get revenge on them for killing uh, his uncle and then for killing Brom. But then, like, they escape from the Razak and are like, we're too weak to defeat them now. We're going to have to forget about that for now. And that's it. No more Razak in the book. And they start up on this thing of like, oh, well, now we have to get to the rebels and get away from this shade guy who just suddenly showed up halfway through the book. Like the the schism between conflicts there is so abrupt and distinct. Yep. And I, I mean, after they get to the Varden, the for a little bit, the new villains are uh, the twins, except then it changes <laughs> again in the final two chapters to being yeah. the shade again. And they don't resolve the stuff with the twins until the next book either. <laughs> Like, the the thing that gets me about this is he could have easily just made the Shade the villain for the whole thing, and he would have been way more compelling. As we were talking about this book while we were reading it, you were talking about how there are, like, five Darth Vaders in this book. Yes, there's Morzan, who is actually the, like, Darth Vader equivalent, and then there's, like, Murtog, who turns out to be the Darth Vader equivalent later on, and you have the Razak, and you have the Shade, and you have, like, the Emperor, and, like, there's all these villains... And they're also, like, one note. Like, the Razak, they're just bad because they are. And the Shade Durza, like, he tries to pull off, like, at the very end of the book, this, like, humanizing moment that does not work. But we'll get to that soon. 
<laughs> but for why the would most he part, commit such an atrocity on his own subjects? <laughs> because he is evil. Satan yes. Sapira flatly. Yes. Page 232, literally, Aragon is wondering out loud why Galbatorix, the evil emperor, would do something bad. And Sapira <laughs> just says, because he's evil. Yeah. And that's the, main, the villains in this book are evil because they are. They're just bad, and they just want to do bad stuff because they're bad, and that's pretty much all it comes down to, and it's so boring because there's like three or four of them, and none of them have a motivation. They're all just bad. And (laughs) honestly, sometimes being evil for the sake of being evil can work, um, but not if you have like a gazillion different villains and all of them are only evil because they are evil. Yeah, being evil for the sake of evil and, like, resisting any attempt to understand your motivations works for, like, the Joker and the Dark Knight. It does not work for four different interchangeable powerful (laughs) bad guys in your fantasy story. Like, no. (laughs) It's almost like Paolini wanted to write a monster story and instead wrote a high fantasy novel. (laughs) Yeah, and the Razak works so well as monsters, but they're out of their setting and it clashes so bad in this. Some of the stuff he establishes for them in the later books is so cool, because like they're very scary, like intimidating monsters, but they're like the sort of thing you'd expect Sam and Dean to hunt on Supernatural. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Yeah, they are. They're 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 Wendigos. Yeah, and all their scenes very much play out that way and it's kind of jarring. As we were saying, the Razlock basically disappear so that the Shade can become the new major villain, um, which happens uh, about, it's between one half, two thirds or so into the book, um, where they actually find um, the elf woman who sent Aragon the dragon egg to begin with and break her out of jail. Yeah. Well, and this one... uh at first kind of seems like it's going to be a new and interesting non-Star Warsy thing because Aragon gets captured and sent to jail. And uh, the Shade tries to interrogate him a bit and he gives him like this drug that blocks his magic. And you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Yeah. And then he immediately breaks out. Yeah. Within a chapter, he breaks out and uh, him and Han break the princess out of prison (laughs) where she was being tortured for information about the rebels. Yeah. Uh, And they have a conflict with the new Darth Vader, the Shade, uh, and they escape from him but are not able to defeat him. Yeah, this is where Aragon um, Aragon thinks that they've killed the Shade because right. Murtog shoots it through the head with an arrow, and yeah, they only learn explodes. later on that it has to be, like, stabbed to kill yeah, it. The Shades are basically demon vampires, yeah. Yes. <laughs> he did want to write a monster story, didn't he? He did. All of his bad guys are monsters. <laughs> I would so love um, a monster story set with like dragons and crap. That would be so cool. That's totally my thing. I actually saw that uh, he's working on a sci-fi book right now, and then he wants to write another book set in the setting of Aragon. And like, I kind of hope he does do something like that. Yes. If, if no. he wrote a straight-up horror story about monsters in this world, I'd read it. I want to read the stuff that Christopher Paolini is writing now. Yeah, I'm very curious about it. I, I'm I'm hopeful. Like I, I'm cautiously optimistic because there's a chance that like <laughs> there's a chance that his writing just stagnated and you know he didn't really work on it that much. But there's also a chance that he got a lot better. Like you never know. Yeah, I have a I have a suspicion that um whatever he writes next is going to be way bit way better than the stuff that he wrote when he was 15. Yeah, I think so too. As is pretty common for when people write stuff at 15 and then again at like 30. <laughs> yeah. 
So it has uh, been a while since this book was published. Yeah, man, he's like thirty-five now. Yeah, well, it, uh, and it's been uh, either fifteen years or like seventeen years, depending yeah. on what <laughs> what you count the actual publication. Yeah, it, date it's to been be. fifteen years since this was a phenomenon. So yeah, uh, our heroes break their princess out of prison, and she's kind of like comatose uh, for a long time. She's just uh, asleep. And, and they can't contact her. So they decide to take her across this great desert uh, to break off their pursuers so that they won't be able to be followed. Uh, and they have that whole laborious discussion about sand water and the whole laborious discussion about how to cross the river. And Yeah, Murtaugh suddenly <laughs> turns like unbearably whiny in this part. He does. He gets real upset, but that's mostly because like he said he was only going to go with Aragon so far and he didn't want to go all the way to the Varden. And like he's starting to realize like, oh, crap, I'm in this until we get to the Varden. And it makes him very yeah, mad. Yeah, and it's... Uh, it's explained, but I don't know if a hundred pages of whiny Murtaugh is justified by, oh, my dad was evil. No, we can have another little Harry Potter moment here and compare it to the, <laughs> fifth, the fifth Harry Potter book where, yes, there's an explanation for why he's so unbearable, but uh, he's still unbearable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, is Murtaugh Snape? <laughs> oh, no, no, don't, don't, don't do that to me. I, I can't handle that one. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, Oh no! Uh, he does kill the leader of the Varden. Yeah, in he the super does. Second book. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff of him being like, "Is he evil or is he not?" Oh no! Wait, I need to check when uh, Order of the Phoenix was published. Oh boy. Uh, Order of the Phoenix was published in. Of course, it's the movie that pops up first, not the book. Yeah, of course. On Wikipedia. <laughs> Thanks for nothing, Wikipedia. 2003. Okay, Aragon was published before Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, it was, but the later books weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that begs the question, when did Elbist come out? <laughs> uh, I think they were all three years apart. I think it was 05, 08, 11, and 14. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh... <laughs> So our our heroes are our whiny boy and our stoic boy and their <laughs> unconscious princess and the dragon uh, travel a long, long distance. And in this part, I made a note where I said, maybe don't have your characters constantly stopping to point out how absurd and impossible what they're doing is. Because every couple pages, uh, like Paolini or Aragon or... Uh, Murtaugh themselves will make some comment or note about how like wow we are like making time that we should not be able to make like make keeping up a pace that should like absolutely kill us like it's way too fast way you know we're covering too much ground too fast but they keep saying that over and over and then they keep up the same pace and never slow down and nothing bad happens to them because of it you keep on expecting Paolini um to come up with some clever reason why they're able to make that pace but no they, they go fast because they go fast yeah, they just do go fast. And like you keep thinking they like they do oh, go fast. <laughs> they got to go fast. <laughs> you keep Sometimes thinking... it just be like that. <laughs> uh yeah, boys be going fast. But <laughs> Uh, you you keep thinking that like Paulini is gonna like kill their horses or like have one of them pass out from exhaustion or, or have some consequence for the thing that they're constantly saying. Wow, I can't believe there hasn't been any consequence for this yet. He does not. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and he's they say it like five or six times it's like wow i can't believe we're going this fast this is like exhausting and like that there's no payoff on that ever which is wild to me are you saying that aragon is not about critical world building smart characterization and fun interaction between good friends (laughs) i mean to an extent there's some fun interaction between good friends but mostly it's sad interaction between two whiny boys yeah uh shout out to friends at the table listen to them instead of us yeah absolutely please like go go have a listen to austin walker and his friends they're the coolest and they would never do this to you yeah, they would never <laughs> they make would, you read they Aragon. would never tell you that murtaugh is snape they're better people than us uh but yeah uh the this whole sequence of them going through the woods trying to find uh this hidden cave in the mountains that Arya uh oh right i got ahead of myself again uh aragon manages to contact the elf woman Arya with his mind mm-hmm. uh and she flips out for a second before realizing that he's not one of the evil people that was torturing her and she reveals to him that she went into this like fugue state because they gave her this poison uh, they were giving her this deadly poison that would kill her within hours, and then they would give her the antidote uh, just before she died and like do all this horrible torture stuff. But uh, when they rescued her, she had not been given the antidote yet, so she's got this poison in her system. She's like, uh, if I don't stay unconscious and comatose like this using my magic, then the poison will spread through my body and kill me. So she gives Aragon this vision of how to get to the secret base, and it's like, you have like three days before this poison gets to me, I'm gonna, you know peace out i'm unconscious again uh so they're trekking through this like mountainous wooded area and there's just page after page after page of them like oh these urgles are following us and they're keeping up pace and like catching up to us oh my goodness we're never gonna get uh there in time and it's just like page after page of we're never gonna get there in time oh they're getting a little bit closer oh we're never gonna get there in time how are we gonna get there in time (laughs) oh we got here yeah and it's one of those things where like they do get there barely in time and have this big fight with the urgles and it's like you could have skipped all of that hemming and hawing about like will they make it and just said like there was a tense couple of days trying to get there in time and then this happened but like (laughs) yeah common mistake with this story yeah it i I don't know it they it's repeated so much that like they're not going to get there. I'm I'm very disappointed that something more interesting than them just getting there didn't happen. Exactly the same thing with them pushing their horses. It's yeah, it's the same thing where he keeps building up into this big deal of like, "Oh, there's no way they should be able to do this thing." Yeah. And then after 5 or 6 pages of saying that over and over, he goes, "But they did." <laughs> What's his thing. power level? <laughs> <laughs> i mean he is a quick learner there's a couple pages where like he specifically says like wow you're so much better with a sword than you have any right to be at this age and it's like yeah. okay <laughs> yeah uh murtog who's like 19 or so and aragon who's i think 16 in the middle like of this 15. book yeah he turns 16 in the middle of the book yeah yeah so they're like the best swordsmen in the land i guess by the middle yeah, of the book better than anyone <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. It's it's more it's more bad fantasy trope nonsense. But and uh, he, like yeah. uh, to Paulini's credit, he does like do his best to show that they train a lot. Like, and that gets a little tedious too. But you you appreciate the effort. <laughs> you appreciate the effort he put in to be like constantly showing you that like yeah they're on the road for weeks and they train every single night in magic and swords. Like yeah, yeah at least he's not suddenly great. But like. Eh. <laughs> He's yeah, pretty he, he, he did have the benefit of being trained 
by Brom, who was an old dude who had been a dragon rider yeah. and like learned everything. Obi Brom Kenobi. <laughs> it still kills me that in the series he receives his dad's sword from the old man in the village and then later loses it and has to make his own sword yes <laughs> man man well, it, I, okay so um i realized that at some point during reading that at some point while i was reading this i realized that this book is like super accidentally deep about the relationships between men uh yeah, it it's is. like yeah, it, it's like what? What's your relationship um, with your dad? And like, what's what's the the relationship that guys have with the other guys around them? Um, and like, the book doesn't delve into that, but it raises those questions. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably it, it, <laughs> probably unintentionally, but it, it's still there. Yeah, you it's can one read of it things, like that. It's one of those things you wish that he had dug into a little bit. Or maybe you don't, because he was like sixteen. He was like a sixteen-year-old boy. So maybe you don't wish yeah, you talked too much about what dudes being dudes is like. <laughs> maybe not the what's, most nuanced. What's better look. than this? <laughs> what's better than this? Just a couple of dudes being bros, fighting with swords and running from Urgles. Dudes being fast. <laughs> Just a couple of dudes being superhumanly fast. <laughs> So they they make it to the secret base and like there's this weird moment of like another bizarre choice trying to raise tension where they knock on the wall of the waterfall and say the secret passage uh, secret password that you're <laughs> it supposed out to, to say be the wrong waterfall it's the wrong side of the right waterfall <laughs> they're like on the left side of the waterfall they were supposed to knock on the right side of the waterfall <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like for some reason that's like drawn out into this very tense moment where like oh they aren't hearing us and then like. Uh, they open up the passage for them in the nick of time and they rescue Aragon and everybody and bring them inside. Uh, and then like they get there and there's this very strange like drop off of tension where like the story just kind of goes all over the place with its pacing from here. <laughs> yeah, the one thing that makes up for it is that you meet the second best character in the book who is Oric, the dwarf. I like a lot of the Varden. <laughs> I like Oric. I like Nasuada. Uh, yeah, Arya's okay. I mean, she's not great, but she's more interesting she's, awake than comatose. Yeah. <laughs> the problem that I have with Arya is that um, not only is she one of the only two or three major female characters in the, in the book, mm -hmm. she is the definition of the not like other girls girl. Yeah, very much so. Where she she talks about uh, there's a point in the book where she says, uh, "Elves train both their men and women to fight. I am not one of your helpless females to run away whenever there is danger." It's like, calm yeah. down, Arya. <laughs> there's a lot of women who do fight in this book. Like, chill out, Arya. <laughs> because yeah, uh, uh, the leader of the Ar the Varden uh, Ajihad, his daughter Nasuada is really cool. Uh, but, like, the thing is, they introduce these characters and kind of, like, tantalize you with, like, this new cast of interesting characters, and you get about 50 pages with them, and then the story yeah. kind of stops yeah. halfway Th through. This, this is a book that doesn't end, it just stops. Literally. <laughs> yeah, they, um, as you might expect, there's a big battle at the Varden base, um, where... Uh, yeah, you made the note that they destroy the Death Star. <laughs> they <laughs> they kill the They kill the Shade, um, and Aragon nearly dies in the process. Uh, he gets slashed across the back by Durza the Shade, 
Um, and the book ends with him hallucinating someone telling telling him to come train in the forest with the elves. Yes, come far away and train in the forest with an old mystic <laughs> hermit. <laughs> Stop me if you've yeah. heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we we made it through um, what you could call the plot of Aragon. Yeah, essentially. Uh, do you want to talk about, like, a couple other little things about the book itself before we get into, like, our memories of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> probably the, the one thing that, uh, I have left to talk about, um, the, the actual text of the book is <laughs> the, the dwarf king Hrothgar yeah. is the 42nd dwarf king. Um, according to Oric, uh, guess yeah. who was president at the time? <laughs> oh my gosh. Was it our 42nd? Let me see. It was uh, Bill Clinton, the four, the 42nd yep. president of the United States. <laughs> As he was writing it, that's that's pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good old Bill Hrothgar. There were there were there were a couple moments in the book where I kind of really liked uh, how how much it showed that Christopher Paolini like tried to do his research about like what technology did and didn't exist and like was and wasn't common at the time. Like when they're uh, scouting out the castle with Joyd. Uh, they're talking. They're talking about like what kind of resistance they could expect to encounter. And at one point, Joyd says, "Be realistic. None of the guards has a flamberge," <laughs> which I don't know. That cracked me up. Uh, another thing that I found especially delightful uh, throughout Aragon was uh, highlighted, especially in the part where Brom dies, uh, and Aragon just gets real, real dark. <laughs> uh there's like uh parts where he he literally um the my favorite part uh he's sitting and thinking after uh brahm dies and he's aimlessly scratching in the sandstone as he sits and when he looks down he realizes that he had written <laughs> why me in the sand <laughs> He, he hasn't written out the sins of everyone around him. No, he just he he aimlessly scratches. Why me? <laughs> like it's incredible. Uh, he he says something along the lines of, "Let me see." To Safira, he says something about how uh, she says, "Like maybe we'll die." And he says, uh, "Oh no." She says, "What does your heart say?" And he says, "My heart died a while back." <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, yeah, and he, he teenagers these... writing teenagers is fun to read. <laughs> it's so good. He gets some of these weird, like nihilistic thought processes at points. He he has some like absolutely buck wild stuff page 172 let me see yeah he finds a stream because he's looking for water and he dips his fingers in the stream and it says the icy mountain water swirled around his skin numbing it it doesn't care what happens to us or anyone else <laughs> thought aragon he shivered and stood and he has a lot of moments like that throughout this book the first one that i took a note of was back on page 72 which was very funny to me where he straight up just has an existential crisis uh, after his uncle dies, he just goes deep into this like, uh, in time, uh, Garo is gone forever, and in time, I must meet the same fate. Love, family, accomplishments, they are all torn away, leaving nothing. What is the worth of anything I do? 
<laughs> like he he has little moments like that peppered throughout the story and every time i read one i just couldn't help but laugh a little bit because it's just so grim yeah no it no it, it's lyrics to an early lincoln park song basically yeah exactly he's literally just reading out like i tried so hard and got yeah. so far and in the end it doesn't even matter <laughs> he's become so numb <laughs> yes <laughs> and the water doesn't care what happens to him, man. <laughs> uh, the other teenagers writing teenagers thing, uh, without getting too blue, is uh, some of the stuff where he describes like how it feels to see Arya. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which absolutely cracks me up so bad. Uh, he says Aragon's blood burned as he looked at her. Something awoke in him, something he had never felt before. It was like an obsession, except stronger almost a fevered madness and i just wrote in my notes what is horny what does this mean <laughs> like he's so taken aback and amazed i'm like you're 16 years old like there's no way that you're all of a sudden like wait i don't know what this feeling is <laughs> he's just a simple farmer and he like gets embarrassed to look at her or like if she brushes up against him he gets all like flustery and i'm like this is too yeah. good but like the thing is though like i can't fault it too much because like you said a teenage boy rating a teenage boy did it pretty accurately of like uh-huh yeah he gets flustered around people he's attracted to and he gets real bummed out about how nothing means anything from time to time yeah <laughs> like that's fair enough dude yeah i can't really tell if that's a point uh to detract from the book or a point in the book's favor yeah exactly like you know i i can't really fault that that's fairly accurate to what it's like to be 16 <laughs> are you ready to to talk about more of the non-book text stuff? Yeah, I think those were the two things that had stuck out to me. What was your relationship to this book when you were younger? Uh, I loved this book when I was a kid. Like, uh, I don't... I don't remember if I found out about it right when it came out. I think I might have like gotten on the train when Eldest dropped a couple of years later. But uh, I remember like I read this and was amazed. Like, wow, he was 16 when he was writing this. Like, I could write this. I could be a great writer and a great <laughs> author. And like, it, it was so much hero worship. Like, I was so enthralled with it. And I thought the magic system was amazing and the dragons were amazing. And like, all that stuff is still cool going back to it. But like, I thought it was the coolest thing ever as a kid. <laughs> Yeah, this book um, blew up at my at my elementary school. Um, mm -hmm. All the other kids were reading it, and um, I didn't get a chance to read it until like everyone else had already stopped reading it. Yeah. Um, but when I did, this series was like my favorite thing in the world for a long time. Um, not not least because of how young the author was. So much of um, my early inspiration to, like, make stories and stuff is, like, directly because of Christopher Paolini writing Eldest and saying, like, uh, hey, teenagers can come up with stories, too. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I've ever really been able to shake this book's influence on, um, like, how how I try to write stuff. Mm, um Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> Someday I hope to have something published, but, like, even in the... Just the little bits of writing that I do now, it's like, I don't... the This book was so formative to me in, like, how to tell a story that yeah. it, 
I, I don't know. I'd have to like deprogram my brain and start <laughs> learning how to write over again to get rid of its influence. And it's kind of interesting because like uh, it was one of the first series as well that like I was looking forward to the last book uh, as it was being written. And then yeah. there was that whole big thing where uh, he realized that the last book was going to be too long and split it into two books uh, and kind of drew out the ending there. So Brissinger book three came out. And everybody thought it was going to be the finale. And mm-hmm. he said, no, no, this is actually book three of four. I'm writing the fourth book now. It takes him three more years to write the fourth book. And it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. And it went from being advertised as the Inheritance Trilogy to being advertised as the Inheritance Cycle because of the the forthcoming fourth book. Yes. And that was one of my first experiences as a kid with kind of that disappointment of uh, <laughs> looking, for- looking forward to this thing of- from a writer that I really looked up to and having it not live up. Uh, I actually stalled out in the middle of the third book the first time I tried to read it, and I had to come back a couple of years later and read book three and four again and push myself through it. And it it wasn't particularly worth it. Like, yeah. Uh, the but, the bl- the bloat and the laboriousness kind of builds and builds and never gets edited out over the series. Book four, uh, book four is okay as far as I remember. Book three is not. Um, oh, it's a nightmare. There, yeah, there's like four hundred pages of some dwarven meeting that Aragon's brother is involved in, and it, mm-hmm. it just goes on forever. There are a bunch of chapters where it's just Aragon walking from one end of the rebel camp to the other and being stopped by people to talk to him about inconsequential <laughs> stuff. Like As, he he never ever cuts away from anything. Like everything that happens to a character you have to know about. I think that I think that Brissinger starts with like a really cool action scene where Aragon and Safira are, are attacking the Razak, but yeah. then afterwards it's just such a slog to get through. Yeah. Well, and that, that's the interesting thing, too, is that, like, to an extent, uh, I, we had talked about this before we were recording, but, like, uh, I kind of admire the fact that he pushed through and finished his series, even though it was something that, like, he was, that was obviously so precious to him and that he was so precious about, but, like, he was still willing to push through and finish it and, you know, publish a final version, even if it wasn't everything he had hoped it would be. Cause like you get these guys like Pat Rothfuss or George R.R. R. Martin who, you know, do the same thing of, you know, their series blows up and they get right to the end of it. And then they take, you know, a decade to write the last book and still haven't finished it yet. <laughs> yeah. But like Patrick Rothfuss, Rothfuss and George R.R. R. Martin have written other stuff. Like this is, Paulini's first published series and he made a ton of money off of it so like of course you're gonna write (laughs) two more books instead of one more book (laughs) yeah but like I don't know I I guess it's more from the creative perspective than from like the production perspective you know uh, of like it's this big big thing that you've held in your mind for so long that you're like afraid to let go of and finish Uh, (laughs) can't relate (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of do admire that he was willing uh, to just let it be what it was in the end and not uh, spend forever trying to get it up to his standard and realize it never was going to be as good as he had hoped. <laughs> the effort is admirable. The results of the effort are not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely uh, still appreciate that about him. And, and that he hasn't given up on writing after that, because I know if I had made a bunch of money off this first epic fantasy series and i had kind of gone out on such a low note with people being frustrated with you know the quality of the last book that probably would have been me saying oh that's enough for me i i did the writing thing and now i'll find something else to do (laughs) 
Yeah, and the the criticism of the series was, I mean, ooh, we're being super hard on it, but we're being super super hard on it because we love it. The criticism that I've seen for this series is all like the the entirety of it is like the inheritance cycle is Star Wars. Um, yes, that's that's the major criticism that I've seen over and over and over again for this series, which isn't entirely true. Um, but it, it's because Paulini was telling such, um, such a, a, it's a story that's been told a gazillion times before. And mm-hmm. it's just that he fell into a trap of telling the same story that Lord of the Rings does, the same story that Star Wars does, the same story that any high fantasy story does. Yeah. He hit all the same beats and like, it, it's easy and, uh, to take that cheap shot and just like not go any deeper with it than, ha oh, it's just Star yeah. Wars. But like, <laughs> there, there's more to it than that. <laughs> Yeah, Paulini's a better writer than his critics. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, did you want to talk about a little bit of like uh, what, what were your favorite and least favorite parts of of going back and reading the book? Yeah, uh, my favorite moment in the book is that storm, um, that storm yes. scene that I read at the very beginning of the episode. I think that the description there already all really comes together, and it showcases all of Paulini's strengths. Like, see, scenes like that are scenes where it's important to build tension by going into granular detail about everything that's happening. Um, and I'm glad that he did stuff like that in scenes where it's justified. Um, but my my least favorite moments um, are are scenes where it, my my entire least favorite section of the book is when Aragon and Murtog are trekking across the desert trying to go as fast as they can and they keep on saying we're never going to make it and mm-hmm. then they make it mm-hmm. and nothing comes of the we're never going to make it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that that section of the book um i, I had been reading i had been, re- been reading this book super fast up until then and then it was just hard for me to pick it up during that part yeah me too i had the exact same experience uh, I, I have pretty similar favorite is that like, uh, it wasn't any particular scene for me, but I really appreciated how evocative a lot of his descriptions were. Uh, mm-hmm. like he, he writes really good, especially descriptions of like places and nature, especially like you can tell that he grew up in, I believe Montana, uh, and based, uh, the Valley that Aragon lives in off of his own home area. Like he grew up in the woods and the mountains and he describes them really lovingly and, and really evocatively. Like you, you can get a really strong sense for uh place when you read his stuff, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Pellini grew up in Far Cry 5. <laughs> Paolini grew up in Hope County. <laughs> Writing all about... Oh, gosh. <laughs> Cultists. <laughs> Is that the secret of the, like, Helgrind cult? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> the Razak are actually from Far Cry. It all connects, man. But, no, like, I, I really liked... Uh, like like you said, when when it's justified for him to be so granular in his writing, it's very good. He he can mm-hmm. be very descriptive, but there are times when he gets very descriptive about stuff that we didn't need to know. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have an uh, off switch for that kind of description, and it's it's annoying. Yeah, and the the low thing for me is different from yours. Uh, there were a couple of times where he got into sort of like the morals of his characters and did a little bit of like moralizing. I did not like that <laughs> not not in a keep politics out of my books sense like please put more politics in my books but i don't love the politics that kind of like surface every once in a while yeah yeah do you have like an example of that yes i do i have two uh before he meets murtog 
when he is in uh, the town, I think, of Helgrind or Drosleona. Like one of the bad, <laughs> Doesn't sad matter. towns. Yeah, no, it's Drosleona. It's like sad, bummer of a town. Uh, and he, oh, I think I might have been confusing those two things uh, from the get go. I think Drosleona is the town and Helgrind is the name of the mountain outside of it. So they're the same place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in, in that town, like it's a real bummer of a town. It's really poor and run down, and the people there are in, in bad condition. Uh, and he's walking through the town. Uh, seeing all of the sad stuff and like there's a slave auction and uh, he, he grinds his teeth and he's you know furious and he wants to kill the slaver but he's like uh, you know if I do that the slave won't get away they'll catch him before he reaches the walls it would just make things worse if I tried to help which you know okay I get that but then uh, uh, he, he walks away rigid with fury and outrage it was several blocks before the weeping was inaudible I'd like to see a thief try to cut my purse right now, he thought grimly, almost wishing it would happen. Frustrated, <laughs> he punched a nearby wall, bruising his knuckles, and my note was, uh, it's the Batman school of fighting crime. <laughs> of like, oh boy, I sure wish some petty criminal would come through here so I could punch the crap out of him to deal with my rage. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you, yeah. you just a moment ago were sympathizing with that poor slave, but then you're going to say some guy who's so broke that he needs your money to live, you wish that he would come by so you could beat the shit out of him? Like, What? Yeah, no, he he's he's Batman. He's the libertarian's idea of a good person. Yeah, yeah. Where like he wants to do these grandiose, big, good things, but like, uh, and to an extent, like he does think a little bit about like, oh, if I try to do this thing, will it do more harm than good? But then a couple sentences later, he's thinking like, boy, I sure wish some down on his luck kid would come by and let me punch him for trying to steal my stuff. Like it, it's rough. <laughs> I agree uh, with uh, with like. Safira's morals much more than I agree with Aragon's. <laughs> yeah. I, I remembered that Safira has a really excellent quote um, yes, that w- while we were talking about um, like the character's kind of inner thoughts was relevant. Um, I don't remember which page this is from because I literally took a picture of this and sent it to you. But uh, <laughs> at one point of the book, Safira says, a hatchling, that is what you are. Uh, she's talking to Aragon. Mm-hmm. A hatchling, that is what you are. A hatchling struggling into the world. I may be younger than you in years, but I am ancient in my thoughts. Do not worry about these things. Find peace in where and what you are. People often know what must be done. All you need to do do is show them the way. That is wisdom. As for feats, no army could have given the blessing you did. Uh, Okay, so that must have been right after um, he blesses in big big old quotes blesses the the child (laughs) the girl aragon and the cursed child (laughs) yeah but like that's that's genuinely like that's a genuinely good bit of wisdom from safira right there it is like yeah uh worry about like who you are as a person and she tends to have that good perspective of like you know you are still very young and you have time to grow like you know, the world is very slow to change, but that, you know, that can be a good thing. Like, uh, take the time to work on yourself and don't worry about, you know, the fact that it's taking so long. Like, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, the second thing that kind of bookended this is, uh, for me, this frustration kind of with Aragon's morals and politics was uh, later on when they're in the valley trying to find the Varden, the Aragon and Murtaugh come across some slavers again. And in this uh, interaction, they get in a fight with the slavers, uh, and Murtaugh kills their leader, cuts his head off. Mm. Uh, 
while he is defenseless. And Aragon gets all up in a tizzy about this. He's like, no, is your brain rotten? Why did you kill him? Uh, and Murtaugh says, I don't see why you're so upset. Upset, ex exploded Aragon. I'm well past that. Did it even occur to you that we could just leave him here and continue on our way? No, instead you turn into an executioner and chop off his head. He was defenseless. And like, I'm reading this. I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like he he had just thought in that city back in the halfway through the book like you know if only i could help these poor people who are enslaved and then when murtog kills a man whose job and passion in life is to enslave people yeah he's instantly like oh but you can't do it when he's defenseless like it, it's so weird to me his like bizarre sense of like what is or isn't the right thing to do uh yeah, he, no, he it, says, it's, it's that question of what does it actually mean to stop evil stuff? Yeah, he, he says, you can't indulge in wanton violence. Where is your empathy? And uh, I, I just noted, like, where is your empathy? This guy, like, daily was trafficking and selling human beings. Like, uh, killing this dude helped so many people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it is wild to me that, like, those are Aragon's two big, like, moments of morality in this book are like you know slavery sure is bad but boy i wish i could punch a thief right now and <laughs> slavery sure is bad but i wouldn't kill a slaver if he was defenseless oh boy howdy that's just not the right thing to do like aragon come on man yeah stop being batman seriously well and stop being like stop being so hung up on this weird like uh, uh, if I can feel good about doing the good thing, I'll do the good thing. But if I feel conflicted about it, I won't do it, even if it's the good thing. Like, uh, that's rough. <laughs> Honestly, I think that, I, I mean, I think that at least I went through that same kind of, um, like, mindset as a teenager. So I, I think that this is probably just Paulini expressing, like, inner doubts about the world through yes. uh his main character trying to I'm moralize sure. <laughs> well and the thing too is like i i think it wouldn't have bothered me as much if i didn't remember like that pretty much being aragon's stance throughout the books yeah. like it, instead of a starting place that he grows from that's just kind of how he sees the world is like oh like you you know you you can't ever you know hurt a defenseless enemy no matter how evil they are and like you know yeah, there's certain things that are just too bad to do no matter how much good they would do and that includes killing a slaver and like stuff like that like i don't know it, it bothered me <laughs> yeah I, I mean i think that's indicative of um paulini not being old enough to have changed much himself since he started writing the books yeah 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 it's like it's it's hard to uh write change in a character if you haven't ever like been through change yourself yeah absolutely that's something i worry about sometimes when i write even it's like oh could i write an interesting character you know uh could, could i write an interesting character arc if you know i haven't been through that right. much change in my own life but yeah it's one of those things where you can do it but it takes some study and it takes some practice i think that the the one thing that we have left to do is this mysterious note that you made on our dock <laughs> yes okay i couldn't help myself i had to do uh, a little list of is it an aragon name or a medication <laughs> and, and <laughs> and am i the one playing this game see it won't be a proper game because you know the aragon names so you'll know them but like <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm i unfortunately gonna, know them <laughs> i'm gonna see how many you can remember I'll, I'll try to skip some of the obvious ones okay. i mean like 
Uh, Galbatorix definitely sounds like a medication, even <laughs> though he's the evil emperor or, or Drasleona. Yeah. But uh, how about uh, Losertan? That sounds like a medication. That is a medication. How about okay. Tunivor? Oh, man. I think that's an Aragon name. It is an Aragon name. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, Kostamirna? Um, medication? Nope, that's a town. Oh, okay. <laughs> in Aragon. <laughs> um, Alprazolam. That's a medication. Yes, that's a medication. Uh, let me see. Um, Allegatia. I, I mean, that's the name of the country in that's Aragon. The, that's the country in Aragon. Uh, and let's see. I got one more. Um, Atorvastatin. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess medication. Yeah, that's a medication. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's enough for those, but you see my drift. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't not read that. <laughs> maybe maybe pharmaceutical companies just check the, the Nord's dictionary before naming anything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We need more medication <laughs> with Nordic names. <laughs> check out my new meds. Four. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have me a good dose of Odin. <laughs> I this love to wake fun. up. In, I love to wake up in the morning and take a little bit of Galbatorix and a little bit of Allegatia <laughs> to get me through my day. This is good. That was uh, <laughs> that was good. This is a good episode. Yeah, I had a good time. I'm glad we were able to talk about like I don't know a book that was like so significant for both of us is cool to talk about. Yeah, it's a book that we didn't really. Um, we didn't need to make as copious notes as we did for the other ones, because yeah. at least this is probably like the fifth time I've read this book. Oh yeah, it's at least the third time for me. Yeah, and it's, like, it's it, weird. It's weird going back to a book that you think that you know so well, because mm, this yeah. is one of those books that I thought that I knew it backwards and forwards, and oh, I, yeah. I one hundred percent did not. <laughs> See, that was Artemis Fowl for me. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but. Yeah, it's it's always cool to talk about something that like we both have such a strong association with. I had a lot of fun with Warrior Cats, like being introduced to that world, but it's fun to dig back into something that like has a lot of history for me. So where how would you rank um the three books that we've covered so far? Which is your oh. favorite? Which is your least favorite? Interesting question. Oh my goodness, that's really hard for me. <laughs> Honestly, right now, uh off my dome, I'd say my favorite has been Warriors into the Wild. Like, okay. I really dug that book. Uh, and then uh, second was still Artemis, and third was Aragon. Okay. Um, I think that, for me, I think I like Aragon a little bit more than Warrior Cats, even though it may not sound like it. Um, yeah, that's fair. It is purely because um, dragons are, like, extremely my thing. Um, yeah. I love stories with dragons in them, and I have ever since I was a kid. Um, yeah. it's something it's, I think it's partly because I was like obsessed with dinosaurs, uh, <laughs> when I was <laughs> nine or 10 and yes. I don't think I ever became unobsessed with giant lizards. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot of little like good stuff that we didn't have time to get into in Aragon cause it's a dense book, you know, little interactions and even some characters that didn't come up. That's like, it, it's a good book. It's enjoyable. Yeah. Paulini's the kind of writer that does, um, a lot of the little stuff. Well, yeah. Moment to moment. It's a lot more pleasant than when you take it as a whole, I think. Yeah. Um, 
I would say that if if the faults we've mentioned in this podcast, because we sure did mention a lot of them, if mm-hmm. they sound like stuff you can sand, totally read this book. I think that you'll have a good time. Yeah, if you it, basically if you really like dragon high fantasy and you don't mind a little bit of like uh, tediousness in the middle, kind of like a, a soggy center to the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's some good action scenes. There's some good character interactions. You'll you'll find a lot of stuff to have a good time with if this is the kind of thing that you enjoy sinking your teeth into that you won't bounce off of. Yep. Yeah, and I think that we can end on that note. Um, Aragon's. Uh, Aragon is not a terrible book, um, but it's also not perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's I a, would say it, so. It, it is a fantasy book. And I'd say it's it's still inspirational to me, even now as a 26-year-old, just in a very different way than it was to me at 16. It's cool to think about how, like, yeah, the, the things that you write may not be perfect, but, like, they can still be very good. And, like, it's worth it to put in the effort to to tell those stories, I think. Okay, well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, listeners, for joining us um, as we talk about how bad how bad Aragon is and then tell you to read it. Um, <laughs> thank you, Tim, for talking about it with me. Um, yeah, absolutely. I had a good time, and I hope that the people listening to this do too. I hope so too. Um, uh... What is our next book? Oh, do you have the spreadsheet open? Because I don't. <laughs> Our next book, you're going to like this one. Our next book is The Giver by Lois Lowry. Ooh, um, okay, yes, I'm very excited to go back to that. So I think that uh, Tim and I have learned our lesson as to not give a firm date <laughs> for putting out this podcast. Yeah, but sometime, I think for... probably next month, you can I... expect us to publish an episode about The Giver. Yeah, I think for now we'll say in about a month or so, we'll keep you posted as it draws near. Yeah, we'll talk about The Giver. Yeah, um, you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash page returners. You can find us on Twitter uh, at page returners. Um, You can listen to us wherever, basically wherever podcasts are hosted. If we're not hosted somewhere and you want us to be hosted somewhere, get in contact with us. You can send us an email, uh, pagereturners at gmail.com. Am I missing anything? Uh, no, that's all our info. And if you guys want to send like a recommendation of a book that you loved, go ahead and email it or tweet it at us. We'd love to add some books to the list. Yeah, we'd love to hear from anyone who's listening about the things that they were reading as a kid and how that stuff impacted them. Um, we may even read that kind of stuff on the air if we, we get stories about that stuff that we really like. Oh, yeah. Hit up our Twitter and our Facebook uh, with even your memories of Aragon after you listen to this. If this like sparked something in your mind of like, oh, I remember this about Aragon, please send it to us and we might read it on the next episode. Like, uh, yeah, have a little segment reading about uh, memories from other people. Yeah, and uh, definitely read along with us, too. Uh, If you want to try to get through The Giver between now and about this time next month, go ahead and do so. I think that you might actually get a little more out of this podcast. And it's a short book, like, especially like with Aragon, that might have been a big ask. But with The Giver, you could read like three pages a day and you'll probably get there by the time we record the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a long book. Yep. Okay. well, yeah, thank you. Thank you again. And we will see you next time. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) Bye.